In the past few weeks, we have been going through a series called A Picture of God and uh, looking at the events and stories and earthly ministry of Jesus, the earthly life of Jesus, because we believe in line with Paul and the Apostle John and Jesus himself that, that if we've seen Jesus, then we have seen the Father. That if we can see Jesus, we can see what the Father is like. We can see what God is like. And today we're going to take a look uh, at a story sort of towards the end of Jesus' ministry, right before his crucifixion in Matthew 21. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn there uh, in your phones, or there's, there are copies of the scripture in the back if you would like to take one of those. Uh, you're welcome to, to use that today. So we're looking at Matthew 21, and it's, a, it's an interesting story. Um, and, and then I think gives us a little bit of a new perspective, probably on God and on Jesus. Um, it happened, it's, it's an event that happens, we believe, twice in the, in the ministry of Jesus. Once in the beginning of his ministry, it's recorded in John, and, and, and in the other synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's recorded towards the end of his earthly ministry. And it's the, it's the occurrence of Jesus cleansing the temple. Like if your Bible has little subtitles in it, it might say the cleansing of the temple. Now, this was not... This was not when Jesus went into the temple with a mop and like a bucket of soapy water, okay? He didn't go in and clean up the temple. He went in and, and figuratively cleaned it because he, he disrupted some of the dirt and the, and the dirty stuff that was happening there and, and in essence cleansed it to make it more proper for God's purposes. And it's, it's a wild scene that I think when we look at it a little bit deeper, we, it really paints a picture of our God that maybe you haven't thought about before. So if you have a copy of scriptures, like I said, you can turn to Matthew 21. I'm going to read, um, let's see here, up through verse 17. Uh, And it says this, as they approached Jerusalem, which is sort of the holy city where the temple was, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you at once, uh, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, and it's from the prophet Zechariah. He said this, Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Uh, The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. This word Hosanna means like, save us, or salvation comes from the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, and they asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple's area saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read, and he's kind of poking them a little bit here, have you never read in the Psalms? From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany 
where he spent the night. It's a fascinating story, and I want to break it down into a couple sections. And the first thing I kind of want to look at is this triumphal entry, as it's called. This is often tied to like the Easter series your churches might have gone through as, as Jesus heads towards the crucifixion. But the first thing I want to notice here about this triumphal entry is sort of the, the juxtaposition of things going on in this passage, sort of the irony, the ironic situation that it actually was when it happened in real time. Uh, if you If you look into Jewish history and you study sort of this time period, you would know that Jerusalem and and Israel are sort of a vassal state of the empire of Rome. I mean, this is Rome's territory. It's not, doesn't necessarily belong to the Jews. It belongs to to Rome and they let the Jews uh, live there and and go about their religious ways. And, And you would find that in Jerusalem, they had to pay these exorbitant taxes to not only the temple tax to upkeep uh, the temple, but also to the Romans to keep them at bay. And, and the Jews had sort of an ethnic king. His name was Herod. We see there's a couple different Herods in Scripture. This is sort of Herod the first, if you want to call him that, who, who was a very savvy diplomat. If you read the history of Herod, his reign is crazy. And like he was, he was uh, uh, contemporaries with Mark Antony and Cleopatra, he, he was friends with the first Caesars when they rose up inside of the empire, and he knew how to be a good diplomat with everybody to keep this guy happy and this guy angry, then appease this guy and make this guy happy. And he was able to retain power for himself for a good amount of time over the people of Israel, really for his own good, to fill his own pockets, to maintain his own power and authority. And, and in being a good diplomat and friends with Rome, we see that Herod actually at one point took uh, a golden eagle and he put it over one of the entrances to the temple complex. Now, the, the, this, this golden eagle was sort of a symbol of, of Rome. And he took this golden eagle and he put it over this entry to the temple because he was signifying that the temple is actually under Roman's rule. And it's actually under Roman protection, which... If you study history, you would find this ironic that he would put this golden eagle up there, the protection of Rome, because not a hundred years later, Rome comes in and destroys the temple and burns it to the ground. So let those who have ears, and you'll hear a little bit of my slant here, that those who want to link empire and the church better be very careful. Because when you look through history, you see that routinely it gets crushed. The church gets crushed by empire nearly every time. We see it happens to the Jews in 70 AD. So in this story of this triumphal entry, we see there's this major festival happening in Jerusalem centering around the temple, and it's the Passover feast. And thousands upon thousands of pilgrims and travelers are coming into the city and into the temple area. And and what would happen is there was a fear amongst the Romans that when a lot of Jews got together, there was going to be a riot, that they would realize they had power and they would try to overthrow the regional Roman government. So what would happen during these major festivals on one side of the city a regional ruler of Rome or Caesar himself would come riding in on a horse. And he would come in with a train of soldiers with him, chariots. They would have swords and and these spears gleaming in the sun, and they would walk in, letting the Jewish people know, yeah, there's somebody in charge here. It's not your God. It's us. It's Caesar. Caesar is king here, not anything you have. So don't get any ideas. Know that we are an authority. We hold power over you. So on one side of the city, there's this great, powerful entry of Caesar or of the regional ruler there who's coming and letting the people know that he's in charge. Meanwhile, on the other side of the city, we have this triumphal entry of Jesus happening. 
This notable character coming in with shouts of praise and adoration. And I wanted to read something from you. I found this. Uh, it's, a, it's a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. It's a sermon he gave in 1959 after visiting Jerusalem and visiting the Holy Lands. And he said this in his talk. Jesus entered Jerusalem as a different kind of king. He didn't enter as, as King David did with great military power and great military might or as Saul with all of the military power, not even as Solomon with all of his wealth. But he entered on a lowly donkey, which revealed that this was a new kind of king. Not the same type of king that had come in the past, but a king who had another type of kingdom. And so his escort would not be spears, but palm branches. And he would enter by the voices of little children, not by the shouts of soldiers. A new kind of kingdom and a new kind of king. You can see the dichotomy of these entries into the city from Jesus and from Roman rulers. But this is our God, friends, the most powerful king of all, entering the city on a donkey instead of a, a white, you know, a great horse. God who could make war and use his power to force humanity to submit instead is approachable by even children shouting his name. And whereas the Caesars of the world, both then and now, would use their power to threaten to take life, we see that Jesus comes into the city humble, knowing that his life is going to be taken. He comes in knowing that he's headed for death, even though he would have had the power to stop it, he allows himself to be killed. This is the picture of our heavenly Father, approachable, powerful, yet meek, the lion and the lamb that we sang about, the servant, and yet the king, majestic yet clothed in humility, holy yet irreligious in a way, as we see in this story. Which brings me to sort of the second thing I want to point out here, kind of the main point is about this, this cleansing of the temple that irreligious Jesus does when he comes into the temple. But to grasp this, you need to, to remember or know the history of the temple and what it was supposed to represent. So if you go all the way back to the beginning of creation, we see that there's a bit of a sanctuary that is formed in the Garden of Eden. God creates this place where, where heaven and earth meet, where God dwells with man and man dwells with God and they have this communion and there's this, this interaction between them. And it is a bit of a sanctuary. It's a bit of a temple there in the Garden of Eden when God is on the throne and the people are in communion with him. But as we know in that story, we know that mankind turns against God and says, oh, I want something else on the throne. I'm going to put something else in power, not you. And they have to be removed from the garden. And if you study the scripture at all, you know that on the outside of the garden, whether this was figurative or literal, we don't know. But it says that, that there was this flaming sword that went back and forth, barring re-entry into the sanctuary. The people could not go back into such an easy connection with God because of their unholiness, because they had turned against God. And if they were to go through this flaming sword of judgment, in a way, they would surely die. So they're kept out of the connection to God like that. And then we see in the tabernacle and then eventually the temple that God is making a new place where heaven and earth meet, where God's presence will be, and the people can come and be near him again. Through the, through the tabernacle, through the temple, we see in Solomon's temple that God, his glory fills the temple and the people fall down in reverence. But, but inside was the Holy of Holies where God's presence truly dwelled and the people could not go in there. Heaven and earth meet at the temple. The people are supposed to gather there and worship him, but there's still this separation of distance between them and God. They can only get so close because there was a veil 
that separated them. So if you remember this story, it's this huge, tall veil. It's thick, and it's, it's, it keeps the people at a distance from God. It protects the holy of holy from the common people, let alone the priests. They could only get so close. And then there was the, the high priest who could go in one time a year behind that veil. That was when one time a year somebody could actually go into the presence of God and hopefully live. I mean, it's, it's a total separation of the people from God. They can just get near. So that's sort of the background here of what's happening in the temple. So in verse 12 of that passage, we see that Jesus comes into the temple and he starts flipping over tables. It's meant to be this holy place and he's flipping over tables. He's kicking over benches of the dove sellers. Like we read that and we're like, okay, like imagine right now if somebody came in through those doors, came storming in, making a scene, people praising his name, flipped over the communion table, started kicking over chairs, throwing down microphones. Like it would be a jarring occurrence, right? Like, we can't just read this and think, oh, that's nice. Like, something crazy occurs here in the ministry of Jesus. Well, what is going on here? Like, is Jesus losing his mind? Is he having a temper tantrum? Is he just having unrestrained anger? I don't think so. I think this is sort of the definition of righteous anger. I think this is pure love connected with, <clears throat> with, with justice, It's love and justice put together to set things right for the children of God. Uh, Several years ago, Jess and I were celebrating an anniversary, and we were flying somewhere, and um, we decided to get the cheapest flight that we possibly could, a mistake I will never make again. I will pay the extra money for a decent airline. Lesson learned. We get this super cheap airline, and and we, we flew somewhere, and on the way back, um, you know, I mean, you know how this goes, right? Like to get into an airport, there's, there's lines and lines and you got to park the car, you got to get a taxi, you got to go through security, you got to take your shoes. Like there's this huge ordeal just to get into the airport. Then you get on this cheap airline and like you're packed in there like cattle trying to fly. And, and I remember Jess had a headache and we're flying. And I said to, to the flight attendant, I said, as she went by with the cart, I said, can, can I have some water for my wife? And, and she said, it's only bottled water and it's $5. And I was like, really? Like, you're going to charge me for water? And this is what she said. Honest to goodness, she said, I have ice I can give you if you would like that for free. Like, some I'm supposed to give Jess ice, let her melt it in her mouth so she can then take Tylenol. I'm like, this is ludicrous. So I flipped over the cart. No, I didn't do that. Like, <laughs> but like, but... But I probably would have been justified in doing so, right? Like, this is like righteous anger. This is justice like uh, partnered with love. I think this is a little bit of what Jesus was feeling when he came into the temple. And so I want to give you that word picture to sort of understand a little bit of what Jesus was feeling as he came in. He was indignant at what he was seeing and experiencing in the temple. So I need you to picture this scene with me a little bit more. The temple was a massive complex, like 30 acres on top of a plateau in Jerusalem. And it had walls on the outside, and then it had these inner walls. There were towers. If you look at ancient models of this, there were towers. There were apartments. Okay, there were apartments in the temple complex where the priest and his family could stay. There was a huge treasury where they would collect all the taxes, all the money, the deeds of the people's properties were there, what they owed were there, the debts were there. It says later that when the temple gets stored, the first thing people did was steal the money and burn the debts. Like, like this stuff was stored there. It was the place of, in my mind, religious excess at its best. And on the outside area of the temple, so if you want to picture the Holy of Holy in the middle, as you got further out, the furthest outer court, as it was called, is called the Court of Gentiles. 
Or if you look it up in the Greek, it's the court of, of, of ethnos, the nations. This is where the nations can come and gather. So if you weren't Jewish, this was as close as you could get to God's presence. You would be in these outer courts. It's a huge area where these Gentiles would gather. And then if you moved a little further in, uh, but first you had to pass under a sign that said, no non-Jews beyond this point. If you are, you will die. Like they had gotten permission from the Roman authorities to kill anyone that entered into the next courts if they weren't Jewish. So you go into the next court and it's the court of women. So now this is as close as Jewish women can get to the Holy of Holies. And then beyond that was the court for Jewish men, and they could get this much closer to the Holy of Holies. And then you start to get into where the altar was, where they would burn uh, the sacrifices. And then the very center would be the Holy of Holies, where once a, once a year the high priest could take the blood of this sacrificial animal representing their, their unholiness that causes death, and he would carry it into through the veil into the presence of God, making atonement for sin, making the, the relationship between God and man right again. It's this huge complex. Well, during Passover, it's recorded that, that thousands of people would flood into the city. And the, the ancient historian Josephus says that in one year, there were 255,000 lambs that were sacrificed. 255,000 lambs that were sacrificed. So multiply that out by however many people are in those families that that represents. I mean, you have close to a million people who have flooded into the city to celebrate Passover, to gather around the temple and to come in and out of God's presence. So there's these thousands of people, thousands of Jewish people, thousands of, of, of non-ethnic Jews who are coming in to worship God. There's 255,000 lambs being sold. There's foreign money being exchanged so that something with the image of God uh, can be put into the temple in the shekel instead of a foreign coin. They're getting uh, charged these exorbitant rates to, to uh, exchange their money. And, and all this is happening, like, at, at like an open-air market. Like, have you ever been overseas and been into an open-air market where it's like people are bartering? I mean, it's like a chaos. It's a mix of, like, noise and smells and sweat and people, and there's animals, and it's just chaos. Well, like, this is what's happening in these courts. It's this chaos. People are being ripped off, charged too much, animals running all over the place. And yet, this is the place where the Gentiles are supposed to come and be able to worship God. Like, think about that. There, this is the place where the nations are supposed to gather who can't get any closer to God. This is where they're supposed to come and pray. This is where they're supposed to come and be in God's presence. If you remember, the people of God were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. Like, this was supposed to be a place where the foreign nations could come and gather and worship God, and here all of this is happening. So when Jesus enters the court of the Gentiles first and starts flipping over the money exchanger tables, throwing chairs of people selling doves. He's doing it for a reason. A little sidebar here. I find it interesting that in Matthew and in John, I believe, it says that he flips over the benches of the people selling doves. If, if you've studied Scripture in the Old Testament, you know that, that the doves were reserved for, for people who didn't have wealth, who couldn't afford a lamb to offer a sacrifice. So God made an allotment that they could, they could at least offer a dove. And so Jesus goes after the people who are ripping off those who are impoverished, in my opinion. And, and, he, and he flips over the dove sellers' tables and chairs, and, and he goes on flipping all these things over. And I would say that he was indignant. This was a righteous anger, a justice connected to love for the nations who were being prevented from truly connecting to God truly being able to worship in a house of prayer and instead are trying to worship in a den of robbers. 
They just wanted to offer their sacrifices and were being prevented from doing so. But more than just seeking justice, I would say that something that Jesus was doing something symbolic. He was judging the practices of the temple. He was bringing them to a temporary halt. He stops the sacrificial system for just even half a day, maybe. He was interrupting these dead religious practices for a reason, in my opinion. He was playing the role of the prophet. If you go back and read Jeremiah 7, you can see Jeremiah does something similar. He's playing the role of the prophet who is pronouncing judgment over this, standing in the gate, coming in and ending the sacrificial system for just a time, saying and indicating that it would no longer be necessary, that this way of doing their faith would no longer be necessary. But interestingly enough, I think there's even a deeper meaning still. If you read the account of this in John 3, we see that Jesus actually forms a whip. If you remember this, he goes in and he starts whipping through the air and he's chasing out the people who are selling these things and flipping over the tables again. And when confronted by the religious authorities, they say to him, by what authority are you doing this? Can you do a sign for us? Do a miracle. We heard about that, that wine, that water into wine thing you did over there at that wedding. Do a sign for us here, Jesus. Show us by what authority you're allowed to do this. And if you remember, what he says is, tell you what, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they're like, it took 46 years to build this. You're going to rebuild it in three days? Like, what are you talking about? Well, think with me for a second. What What was torn down and rebuilt in three days? Jesus. He was laid in the ground, torn down, and for three days, and three days later was raised up, new, made new. Do you see it, friends? He's indicating that there's something beyond the temple to be looking towards, that he was the temple, that his body was the temple. His body was where heaven and earth meet. He is a new form of sanctuary. And it's similar to what I talked about last week, looking beyond Sabbath to see the full Sabbath of Jesus. We get to look beyond the temple and see the temple that is in Jesus himself. He is the fulfillment of all of the temple worship and practices. And then look who he says who can come to him. In this story, who can come to him? The blind, the lame, the children, people who everyone else would say, no, you're not allowed. You're not allowed to come close to God. You have these infirmities, like you can't, you can't get near to God. You are imperfect. You can't come near him. And Jesus says, or the book says that the blind and the lame actually can see him for who he is. And they come to him in the temple to be healed. The lame who probably couldn't walk are able to get to Jesus because they believe who he is and they are healed and they find sanctuary in him. Children come and worship him and call for salvation. And the priests say, how can you do that? And he says, Look, from the lips of children, God has ordained praises. This is a picture of our God willing to upset the apple cart of religious performance so that the lame and the blind and the children and you and me can come and truly connect to Jesus, the true temple, willing to combine love and justice so that imperfect people like you and me can experience the transcendent power of God so that we can be in his presence where heaven and earth meet. Our heavenly father, our heavenly dad wants that connection to us through prayer, not through some religious performance. This is why Jesus says this place is supposed to be a house of prayer, not a den of robbers doing all these empty religious things, ripping people off 
And using that MLK sermon again, he says they're going to come in. He's going to enter in on the voices of little children. The kingdom comes when we receive it like children, Jesus says. We get to receive him like children in simplicity of faith, with humility, with honesty. This is why Jesus taught his disciples the way that he did in the Lord's Prayer to say, this isn't about your fancy words. This isn't about religious behavior. You get to call him Abba. You get to call him Dad. Now, look, I don't know what kind of dad you had. I get, like, we all come from different backgrounds, and some of us had really jacked up experiences with our fathers and with our families. But this is what I know. This is the picture we see, that we have a father who will fight for us, who will fight with justice and love so that we can come into his presence. We have one who loves on us and says, come here, open arms, come, come and be with me, come and be in my presence. You are special to me. And we have a God and a father who walks with us through the good and the bad. Jesus goes on in Luke 11 where he's preaching on the Lord's prayer and he starts equating this idea of a heavenly father to their earthly parenting. And he says, look, Which father among you, if your son asks you for a fish, would give him a snake? Or or who among you, if your son or your daughter asked for an egg, would give them a scorpion? He says, if you then who are evil, like you who are broken, sinful, messed up, if you are all those things, yet you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give not just good gifts, but give the Holy Spirit to him, to those who ask him. Friends, do you see it? Like, do you hear it? This is our God. Jesus was acting in justice and love in the temple when he was judging, overthrowing, and stopping all of that religious behavior. He was doing it because it was supposed to be a place of connection between children and their father through prayer. And through prayer, Jesus says, we receive the good gift of connection, and I would say even a bit of transcendence with God, and God wants to connect to you, and wants to connect to me, and wants to connect to our church community, and not only that, he wants to give us the Holy Spirit. He wants the Spirit to dwell inside of us. He wants to give us a bit of himself to where we can have a permanent connection with him, no longer needing to go on a pilgrimage to a temple, but being filled with the Spirit and constantly in connection with the Father. He wants to unite heaven and earth in you. He wants to unite heaven and earth in me. We now get to be the little temple that carries God around with us wherever we go. But here's the thing. Remember the sword back in the garden that prevented people from entering back into the sanctuary of God. Remember the veil that separated the people from getting into God's presence. You can't just come into God's presence if these things are still real, if that idea of judgment still exists, preventing us from entering into God's presence. Well, friends, this is the gospel. Remember this with me. When Jesus was was on a cross and dying, he himself goes back through the sword of judgment on our behalf, taking the judgment that we deserved so that we can enter into God's presence. And if you remember what happened when he died, there was this huge earthquake. And it says that 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 temple veil, that curtain that separated men and women from the presence of God, there was an earthquake and that thing tore in half. 
that thick curtain that was like 50 feet high, it tears in half, symbolically saying that the Spirit of God has been released into the world and we can now come into the presence of our Father through prayer and through worship. We no longer need to go to a place to meet God. His Spirit is available to us who will ask Him for it. Friends, uh, we're going to take communion here today and celebrate this reality. The veil has been torn and we all now can enter in to God's presence. And not only that, when we are filled with the Spirit, we are now the temple who get to carry Jesus out into the world. We get to represent God to the world around us, living out the same kind of juxtaposition and irony that Jesus did. Humble humanity, yet filled with the power of the Almighty, full of life, yet carrying around the sacrifice of Jesus, the death of Jesus, Paul says, representing him to the world. We are now what I would like to call heaven and earth people. We are the place where the Spirit of God meets, and we are heaven and earth people representing him to the world around us. Little pieces of transcendence for the world to see. This is why I say I want to model this to the world and invite them into it. This is what good evangelism looks like, in my opinion. So by following Jesus, we take his, his blood, we take his body that was torn for us so that the veil could be torn and we could be entering into God's presence. And we get to become part of the body of Christ, the temple of Christ, carrying him with us wherever we go. So I want to ask a couple questions to, to bring this home to you personally. If you're here in this house of God today, the Nazareth YMCA, the house of God where we have gathered and formed today as a community just to check a box, just to perform some religious duty and feel like you've done your part, can I invite you to a deeper connection with the Father? Can I invite you to have a true relationship with God who loves you and wants to give you his spirit, who wants to be uniting heaven and earth inside of you, not just some religious, empty legalism? Can I ask you to make the day that, that, that this is the day that you take communion for you, that you take the blood and the, and the body of Jesus symbolically for you, not because some church told you to, not because some padre, priest, father, pastor told you to do it, but because you want Jesus in that way because you want him to be your savior, because you want to come to him in simplicity and say, I need this. I need the power of God in my life. I want heaven and earth to meet in me. Thank you that I don't have to go to some fancy place or use fancy words to make that connection happen. Can I ask you to connect to your heavenly father in simplicity through Jesus? Can you pray with me? Jesus, as we prepare to take communion, I ask that you would pierce our hearts, that you would convict us, that you would know where we are just doing religious performance and you would humble us. I pray that you would make, yourselves, that you'd make yourself new to us in a way, that we would comprehend you in a new way. Holy Spirit, we give you free reign here to move in our hearts and move in our midst. I pray that you would make us a heaven and earth people who represent you to one another first, that represent you to our family, and then we carry you out into the world to be a light to the Gentiles, 
No longer doing religious acts, keeping others from worshiping you, but honestly and humbly coming to you and saying, join me. Join me in this humble pursuit of our Father. Jesus, help us be people of prayer who connect to you with simplicity. Not with big fancy words, not with big religious behavior, but with simplicity. And not just on Sunday mornings, but on Wednesday mornings and Thursday evenings and at the dinner table and on the way to work. That we can remember that because of you, because of your, your body that was broken on a cross for us, your blood that was poured out, that we have forgiveness of sins, that the veil has been torn, and we can be in your presence no matter where we are. And that we can call on you as Father. I feel like I need to say this. I pray that you would renew our innocence as children. Renew our innocence to be knowing you as our father, as our parental figure who, as parental figures who may have hurt us or scarred us. Help us reconcile that, but, but know that we can come to you. Restore our innocence, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.